is there a God spot in our brain? What does two plus two have in common with belief in God? How is our brain designed to help us experience God? Why might religious experience not be all it's cracked up to be? And how does the plasticity of our brain give us hope? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Plimming, and in today's show, I'll be talking to the Reverend Professor Alastair Coles. Alistair is Professor of Neuroimmunology at the University of Cambridge, an honorary consultant urologist at Adam Brooks and Hinchinbrook Hospitals, and also an ordained minister in the Church of England. While his main academic focus is into new treatments for multiple sclerosis, his academic research has also led him to investigate religiosity and spiritual experiences from the standpoint of neurology. Our question today, what can we learn about the connection between belief and the brain? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Alistair Coles, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Alistair, I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey, both uh, in medicine, but also uh, in faith and ordained ministry. So at the age of 16, I had a conversion experience where I decided that I wasn't going to be a fighter pilot. and Instead, I was going to be a neurologist, by which I mean a doctor who deals with diseases of the brain and uh, I'm really excited to say that I am now a neurologist so it all worked out. So I spend most of my time either seeing people with brain diseases and trying to get them better or studying the effects of diseases of the brain. Now in my 20s I began to think well this is fantastic this is what I always wanted to do this is where God wants me to be. But I also want to have more of a Christian voice in my workplace. And obviously that little impulse can take you in lots of different directions. But for me, for reasons which aren't at all clear to me, I got ordained into the Church of England. And it's still not entirely clear to me that that was the right thing to happen. But there, there you are. So I ended up now as a neurologist working, doing research in the University of Cambridge, and I have a role as an ordained person. I'd like to say I was a working priest, minister in secular employment sort of person, for those of you who are interested in these technicalities, but I'm labelled as the chaplain to the staff of the hospital where I work. Some of my time I worry about how we can improve things for the staff, how we can supply and resource the spiritual needs of the staff. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a mishmash. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the journey you've been on in terms of studying the relationship between those two areas of your vocation, and in particular studying the relationship between religion and spirituality on one hand and its physical expression in the brain. How did you get interested in that? So I think I can really focus this on one interaction with a, a patient who came to the hospital to see a neurologist who refused to see the neurologist she was put in front of 
because he failed to answer correctly her first question, which was, do you believe in God? And so she insisted that she would see a neurologist who believed in God because what she had to say um, concerned her experiences of God. So I was uh, brought in as the one neurologist anyone knew who believed in God, possibly the only one ever in the world. And so she's told me this story. And she told me a story about some strange experiences she'd had, which I thought were due to epilepsy. She said they're due to God. And I said, well, this could be epilepsy mimicking God. And she said, no, it could be God speaking through epilepsy. So I then said, well, I don't think God would do that. But I'm not sure that's right, actually. But I did say that. And she said, well, I think it is. And I said, well, don't worry, because I can make you better by giving you pills that will stop these experiences happening. And she said, well, why would I do that? It's God speaking. That was the conversation that really awoke in me the conflict of our experiences and our reductionist explanation in terms of the way your brain works. So this really comes to a focus with brain diseases. If you have a brain disease that alters the way your brain works and you have certain experiences, as a result, are those authentic and real and can we learn from them or not? So therefore, that takes us into this topic for today, Alistair, which we're doing something quite unusual in talking theology, which is asking theological questions of a complex area of science, which is the brain. But we've got you with us, so that's a good place to start. Can you begin, Alistair, by giving us a sense of what's the most recent research telling us about the brain? And what are we learning about that kind of great philosophical debate about the relationship between the brain and the mind? Can you set out the landscape, first of all? So I think people might be quite surprised to learn the extent to which brain scientists, when they sit down and talk to each other, and psychologists and so on, are quite happy to reduce nearly all human behaviour and experience due to the workings of the brain. And that would include the phenomenon that we call the mind, the experience of having this thing that's thinking within us. I think it's a kind of folk belief that the mind is somehow separate, uh, operates outside of the body in some way or separate from it, and is potentially eternal. We could perhaps talk about that. And the modern neuroscientific community would reject that. The mind is definitely embodied. On the back of that, Alistair, Can we look more specifically at the relationship, therefore, between the brain and religion? Can you once again set out where we're at in our understanding at the moment about that relationship and how people have seen that, depending on the evidence that we have? Yes, so there's been a search for centuries as to the spiritual centre of the human and People have placed it in the liver and the heart in the past. But for several hundred years, people have said, well, it must be in the brain somewhere. There must be a God spot in the brain that's responsible for our experience of God, for our knowledge of God, so on. And through to the 1990s, people were looking for this God spot. I think what then happened and what brings us to today is a maturer understanding of what religion is. So not so much developments in neuroscience, but actually a clearer view that religion is not just one thing. It can't be attributed to one function. So uh, my friend Warren Brown says religion is a bit like baseball. We might say it's a bit like cricket. In other words, there's lots of things going on. And so we can divide it up, religion, 
And then we can start to say, well, which bits are dealt with by the brain and by which parts of the brain? So just to give a very simple example, if we say that religion is about belief and doctrine and practice and experience, we might look at belief. And there's a whole study of how beliefs work in the brain, believing something to be true, believing something not to be true. It turns out that we have a believing brain. That is to say, our, our brain is built to believe positively things about the world. At a very simple level, we see things that are difficult to interpret and we make sense of them as objects. And that's where optical illusions come. These simple fragments coalesce in our minds to make something of them. So all the time, our brain is making hypotheses and believing in them positively, believing them to be true. And whenever anyone has studied the architecture of religious belief or the anatomy of religious belief, it is exactly the same as the neuroanatomy of the belief that says, I think that is a cat. You know, that optical illusion is a cat. Or, uh, so exactly the same mechanisms are at play. So religious belief doesn't seem to be dealt with in any separate or special way. And when people make mathematical verifiable statements like two plus two equals four as a statement of truth, the same pathways are used to make the proposition that there is a, an almighty God who loves them. So it's not as though we divide the brain at work into things that are highly verifiable and those that are conjectural or religious or spiritual or difficult. No, the brain works in exactly the same way. So I think that's a really, is a good thing for people to hear. It turns out that disbelief is actually rather unusual and people who profess disbelief who have a rather different set of neuroanatomical pathways underlying that are really rather rare, for instance, and so on. So we can fragment the religious life into these different domains. Another beautiful example is in the studies of prayer. Prayer comes in various different sorts. We know there are prayers that we just repeat over and over again, Father, and then there are prayers that we freely express. And it turns out that the mechanisms that our brain uses to say our father are the same as they would be to repeat a nursery rhyme. The mechanisms underlying free prayer are very different and are no different from those that are used when talking to another person. So it turns out that when we pray and we believe, those of us who do, that we're speaking to our father, it is actually no different as far as our brain is concerned from talking to our neighbor. So that really encourages me. I think there's something very incarnational about that. Push it another way, there is nothing spooky about the brain at work in the religious life. There's nothing special or extraordinary. You talked about the different aspects of religion, and we've already mentioned belief and prayer. Looking specifically at the neurology of religious experience, which I know is an area you've looked at, can you just give us a bit of a sense about what's going on in the brain during a what we might call healthy religious experience? So I think the first thing to say is that's really difficult to study. And that's why I've gone on to study people with neurological disease. So can you imagine putting someone in a scanner, or taking blood from someone or whatever and saying, OK, now I really want you to have a religious experience right now and then we'll get a good picture of your brain at work. So. So that's the trouble with all of those studies. And often you end up doing something like this. You end up putting 
a load of Carmelite nuns in a scanner. This is a real experiment. And they were told, okay, we want you to remember the last time you felt really close to God, and then we'll do a scan. And the nuns would do that. So you can see there's problems with that. You know, are you really scanning the experience or are you scanning the remembering of it and so on? So I've taken a different approach, which is a really old-fashioned approach to the study of the brain, which goes back to the late 20th century, which is to say, okay, so we have people who have focal brain damage to what's missing from their religious life. And the advantage of this is that this is a real-life experiment. So it's not just sticking in the scanner for 10 minutes. This is someone who's lived a life without that particular part of their brain. Or even more exciting, what about someone who has a part of their brain repetitively stimulated during 30 or 40 years of life? You know, what would happen then? And the particular interest I have here is in a very rare group of people who have epilepsy, who experience in their epileptic seizures the divine, the spiritual. And some of these people can have this experience three or four times a day, every day. So the question then is for you theologians, so that's the wonderful experiment, if you don't mind me being a bit pejorative, it's an experiment of nature which says, what if someone experiences the divine every day, three or four times? What would that turn into in terms of a faith? So that's something you can do a thought experiment about, or you can actually talk to these people and say, okay, so what is your faith like? You've had this amazing experience. So the first thing that's very striking is that these are people who know and have been told they have epilepsy and may well even have had many years of drugs to prevent epileptic attacks. Many of them may have gone on to have neurosurgical operations. Nonetheless, draw significance from the experience of their seizures. I've genuinely met people who say this is the most important thing in my life. So this paradox that I started the story with of someone who knows they have a disease and yet experiences God through them. But that's the first thing. But the other observation is that they do not lead deeply religious life. It turns out that experiencing God three or four times a day is not the prime ingredient for a highly developed faith. In fact, the spiritual lives of people tend to be slightly chaotic, fragmented, unstructured, unassociated with a, a formal religion. Uh, generally, people like this fall out of worshipping communities. They're not part of a church or a synagogue and so on. And so I think what we see from a theological point of view, is the limitations of experience. And I think that chimes with the Gospels. You know, the Gospels encourage us to experience God, but they don't place all of faith on experience. So is what you're saying that we can see a reality to the religious experience and its relationship and location within the brain, but that on its own, that is not the full experience of God that is held out within the Christian faith, as we might understand it. Yes, I mean, I'll take it further. I think the first thing we learn is that there's machinery in the brain to allow us to experience God. And that can be mistakenly triggered by a brain tumour or a epilepsy. But secondly, experiencing God frequently does not lead to a healthy religious life. The other domains of the ordinary religious life, worship, belief, religious practice, and so on, 
turn out to be important ingredients to a mature faith that is congruent with, let's say, the Christian teaching. You talked about the fact, Alistair, that we have this machinery to experience God, and yet you then go on to say that experiencing God is not all the religious life is. Is there a sense in which some of our machinery works better than others? That is to say that some of our brains are set up in such a way that their machinery to experience God runs slightly more smoothly. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I think we can have different talents in the various different domains of the religious life. And is that really surprising? So, I mean, we have different talents in other parts of our life. And I think if you look at different worshipping communities, you will see people are attracted to different sorts of, let's say, church, because they emphasise this or that aspect of the religious life that is particularly appealing to them. And I, I think that's just an expression of, amongst many other things, the way their brain is built, their particular brain architecture. So does that suggest that we might not get too worried about whether my sense of religious experience is stronger or weaker than my sister or brothers in faith, but rather we might sit our religious experience and our sense of it alongside other patterns and hallmarks of the Christian life that might be serving, that might be praying, that might be worshipping and sacrificial living, that the religious experience is everything. We should be quite cautious about that idea. Well, I think quite cautious in several ways. I mean, the Gospels teach us to be cautiously encouraging of spiritual experiences. But I think as a result of my interest in this area, I now have a clinic where I see people referred by other doctors, but also by pastors and ministers who come with strange experiences and in the context of religious framework. And I'm asked to see, well, whether this is God or epilepsy or Parkinson's or, you know, what's to be done about it. And when I started out on this, I used to focus on the details of the experience. So I thought, well, that must tell us something. There must be something that is in the story of these experiences that marks them out as true and authentic or inauthentic. And it turns out that just as William James says in the first chapter of the Varieties of Religious Experience, actually the content isn't helpful. The content is not helpful. And I've learned now to not pay a lot of attention to how many horns the beast had or how many wings the angel had or, you know, just what that smell was like or whatever, because I don't think it helps. And I think in the end, both from a neurology point of view and from a kind of ministerial point of view, the best test, William James came to this conclusion as well, is the gospel test, is by their fruits shall you know them. So people have these experiences, and I think they're authentic if they lead to persistent change of heart. With that in mind, Alistair, and on the back of your own research and practice over the years, do you think that people of faith have anything to fear from these sorts of insights from neuroscience? So I'm really pleased to be able to tell whoever wants to listen that their faith is not under attack by neuroscience. So unfortunately, it is relatively common that you can open up a newspaper which says, uh, scientists prove God doesn't exist or something like that. And it might well involve putting a nun in a scanner or some experiment like that. But I don't think there's a good neuroscientist anywhere 
who would argue that that's good science. I think neuroscience, brain science, like all the other sciences, are wonderful ways to explore God's creation. I think neuroscience has some things to challenge faith with, just like faith has some things to challenge neuroscience with, but only in a creative way. And what would be those areas of challenge both ways? I think the neuroscientist would say to a theologian, why do you insist, if you do, on bringing the eternal immaterial into the world of a human and his or her religious life? Because I can explain so much of what that human experiences, thinks, cares about, loves for on a biological embodied basis. And uh, you know, other people on your podcast have talked about this, the, the concept of the body uh, in the Hebrew and the Christian faith. And uh, I am so reassured when I read the Hebrew scriptures and, and the Christian scriptures just how embodied our faith can be interpreted through a sympathetic understanding of, of some of the language. So I think that is a challenge. And I think the challenge goes the other way. I think people of faith would say to neuroscientists, look, my faith is real. My belief in God is real. My belief in a God who acts on the world is real. I don't want you to disprove or prove it because that can't be done, but I want you to account for that in your embodied psychology. I want you to take seriously the soul. I can tell you from first-hand experiences that talking about the soul in a neuroscience meeting gets you uh, nowhere very quickly. You've used a number of terms in our conversation, Alistair, around body, embodied, incarnation. It seems to me that you find great hope in the fact that our brains are part of our bodies and that therefore God has designed brain and body to work together in such a way as to experience the God who made us and that therefore it's in this connection, this embodied nature of our brain that real potential is to be found. Is that right? Yes, I want us Christians and those of other faiths to take our bodies really seriously, not to become idols, but to acknowledge that our bodies are what senses the world and senses God, and it's our brain that is the material matter of our mind and our soul. How does that play out? Well, it plays out in various different ways. There's a diversity of bodies. That's pretty clear. And I think that does lead to a diversity in religious expression. And I think that would encourage me to be less judgmental. And I'm certainly far less bothered about the, the little differences between variations in church expression and whether one is right or not, whether one is more holy or not, that I've lost that sense of importance. Just because I think our bodies are so different, we experience things in different ways, and in the end, that, that's not the thing that matters. The thing is the fruit. And so, therefore, what are the ways in which taking that forward we might healthily approach our own religious practice as embodied beings. Yeah, I think in positive and negative ways, I'm just thinking about things negatively for the moment. I mean, when people have damage to their bodies, damage to their brains, we should expect that to impact on their religious life in some way. There's a myth that we can take hits to our body, to our brain, to our mind, and yet have a perfect religious self that is somehow ethereally hanging around. 
I think that's very damaging. I know because we've studied this, people with Parkinson's, with early dementia, with multiple sclerosis and so on, do feel their disease has an impact on their spiritual life. To begin with, often a harmful one. It may flower subsequently. So I think we need to take seriously the impact on our spiritual lives of things that happen to our bodies. But in a more positive sense, I think we can look at the way our brain and body changes and say, well, that can have a, an effect on our spiritual lives in a positive ways. So here, for instance, the plasticity of the brain, which persists in adulthood and allows us to learn as adults and indeed to change the very structure of our brain, means that there is hope for change. We're not stuck. So a wonderful experiment of taxi drivers, well-known experiment of the brains of taxi drivers, shows that you can scan a particular area of the brain of London taxi cabs, which has to do with spatial navigation. And in older taxi cab drivers, that part of the brain is literally bigger, literally bigger, because they've had more experience of this very unusual thing every day having to navigate around London. You know, they're highly specialized spatial navigators, and their brain has changed as a result. Not changed because they started at the age of five. No, they, they started as adults. So there is no one who is lost. Finally, Alistair, can I ask how this academic research on the connection between religion, spirituality and the brain has impacted your own faith and spiritual life? So to begin with, I became very anxious because I was concerned that experiences I had had might have been in some way inauthentic because I had drunk too much or drunk not enough or eaten something, whatever. And I was worried that my experiences could be reduced to something happening in the brain or my liver or whatever. But as I've gone on in the way I hope I've described, I've become less and less interested in the contents of experience and quite where they come from, because in the end, I don't think that's helpful. But I do know, and I'm sure now, that the few experiences I've had of God are built around by ideas of doctrine, teaching I've had, regular practices, and the whole, the whole is my religious life. So I'm less anxious now than I was. And does that mean you're happier to put your search religious experience in the wider context of those various practices of the religious life that you describe? Yes. So I think a healthy religious life, and of course I don't have one quite, who does, but, you know, hopefully getting there, the healthy religious life has all of these domains in balance. And having lots of religious experience, however exotic and intense, turns out not to end up with a healthy spirituality. So that's a comfort for me. It's also a comfort for me that I don't have to worry about its origin exactly, that if I can ascribe a biological process to this experience, it doesn't mean it's not real doesn't mean it's not authentic or I can't learn from it. Alistair Coles, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. It's been such a pleasure, Philip. Thank you. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmer Hall, Durham. 
Glenmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.